Would you bow with me? Let's pray. Oh, holy God, let nothing this morning detract from the glory and the attention that Jesus Christ deserves. And so, Lord, as we have been called to you and as we have worshipped you, sustain our gaze further, Lord, as we open your word now and help us to see him more fully than we've seen before. We pray in his name. Well, last week we began our series on the Gospel of Mark, and uh, I began by telling you that there's a very important question in the Gospel of Mark, and we've put it on our banners at the front. You see that the banner on the left is the question that Jesus posed to the apostles. It's found in Mark chapter 8. It's the pivotal place in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus said to his apostles, Who do you say that I am? And then when Peter responded with saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, it's still the most important question that people need to be answering. It's still the most important question Jesus asks. And he's not asking, what are you going to sign as a statement of faith? He's asking you, who do you say that I am when you live your life? How do you, in your, in your life living, say, what do you say about Jesus? Do you say that he is, as we've sung, strongest one, Lord of all, and so on? That's what Mark's gospel wants us to address. We said last week that the purpose of Mark writing was to present the person and power of Christ, the Son of God, to a Gentile Roman audience so that they would hear the gospel and put their faith in him. And last week we went through some of the finer features of Mark and its distinctives. We talked about how Mark was not an eyewitness, but likely he was the interpreter of Peter, the apostle who who spent a lot of time with this young man, John Mark, and, and indeed passed on the stories to, to uh, Mark. And we looked at the opening words of, John, uh, of Mark last week when we see in verse 4 of chapter 1 that it says that John came. That was the way Mark opens his gospel. John came. And then in verse 9, we read that Jesus came after John. And then in verse 15, we read that the time came. And the time that's used there, the word is kairos, which means a specific and special time that came. And uh, God has those times in each of our lives if we're sensitive and discerning to listen to the timing of God in our lives. And then I said last week that following that, we see in chapter 1 and the rest of Mark that really all the rest of Mark is about, and then the people came, and they came, and they came, and they came. In fact, there are over 20 references to personal encounters that Jesus has with individuals in the Gospel of Mark. And so we see that, that it's all about uh, the action and reaction gospel. Uh, Mark seems to be like a cameraman that's zooming in on Jesus when Jesus does something, and then as soon as he's done it, he zooms back to see the crowd and the reaction that the crowd has given. And so we see a lot of that happening in the Gospel of Mark. This morning, as we continue our passage, I would like to uh, ask you to open in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. And we're going to continue in chapter 1 of Mark, verse 21. As you're turning to it, I want you to notice that as we look at, at uh, verse 14, we see that uh, John is put in prison and Jesus goes into Galilee and he's all alone. But by the time we get to verse 21, already Jesus has four apostles, the four fishermen. And uh, in a sense, we learn something from Jesus right from the get-go that Jesus is saying, don't do something alone that you can do with somebody else and in the doing of it, nurture faith. 
Because Jesus seems that right from the beginning, he's interested in taking some people along, these four young fishermen that are pretty crude at this stage of the game. So in John cha- or Mark chapter 1, would you open to t- verse 21, and uh, would you stand with me as we honor God's word in its reading this morning? They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. And the evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were so amazed that they asked each other, What is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the region of Galilee. And as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. But Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so that I can preach there also, for that is why I come. And so he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand, and he touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. But instead he went out and he began to talk freely, spreading the news. And as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. May God bless his word to us today. You may be seated. Ravi Zacharias, in his book entitled Deliver Us From Evil, tells a story that comes out of India of a very rich man who wanted to buy an entire village. And so he began one by one, door to door, going to each owner of homes and shacks and began to buy every property. And at the price that he was giving, no one could refuse, except one man, an old man that lived at the very center of the village, owned only a small piece of land and a little shack on that piece of land, but he was resolute. He would not sell. The man kept on upping the price, kept on pleading, but he would not. And finally, the day of the development came, and he decided to go ahead without him. And so the whole village was redeveloped with this one little property at the very center And whenever the the owner of the village had guests from other places and he was showing off what he was doing, the old man would come out with his 
wobbly finger and he'd point it out to the visitors. He'd say, don't let him tell you that he owns the whole village because he doesn't own this place. And that's the way it would go. Ravi Zacharias responds by saying this, that this is a commentary on the church today. Retreating from the world, many Christians seek cover inside their little church buildings, wagging their fingers at the secular ownership of the social landscape and receiving petty satisfaction in saying, well, at least this little part still belongs to us. Is that the image that you have of the church today? Is that the image that we have of ourselves? Or maybe I should put it another way. Is that the vision that Jesus had of the church when he preached those three years in Galilee and surrounding districts? When he came and he said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We do not see a cowering little church on the defensive, but rather an incredible army on the offensive, conquering what Satan assumed was his territory. When we open the pages of the Gospel of Mark, it's a very contrasting story to the little story that I just told you about India. For indeed what we see is Jesus invading, invading the world and showing his authority and power over what Satan assumed was already his. Think about how Mark opens up the Gospel and tells the story of Jesus. Jesus has just spent 40 days fasting in the wilderness, being tempted by the enemy. And he comes out of that fasting and plunges into one of the most intense ministries imaginable. Overnight, Jesus became so popular, the most popular figure in all of the region of Galilee. People were amazed at his teaching, astonished at his power to heal, awestruck at his authority over demons and evil spirits. And after their time in the synagogue that we read about, James and John accompany Jesus to the home of Peter and Andrew where there's sick people like Peter's mother-in-law. It says in verses 32 to 34 that the whole town gathers at the door. And we don't even know how late they are up that night where Jesus is preaching and he is sharing and he is healing and casting out evil spirits. In recounting the occurrences of that first day in Capernaum, Mark tells us twice, verse 24 and verse 34, that evil spirits knew who he was, even though maybe many of the people that were gathering had no clue who it was that was there. Let's take a look at our first point. If you have your green piece of paper, you might want to follow along. The first point in our outline this morning is that we're going to talk about a solitary place where Jesus prayed to the Father If we jump right into the text in verse 35, we see that after a late and exhausting night in ministry, Jesus gets up early the next morning when it is still dark and he goes off to a place. And we're not told where. It's just called a solitary place. The thing that's very interesting about the word that's used here is that this word is the same word used in verse 3 and 4 of wilderness or desert. And it's the same word used in verses 12 and 13 of where the Spirit sends Jesus into the desert, the lonely place, to be tempted by the enemy. And here it is again, only this is not the same lonely place where Jesus was tempted or where John came preaching. 
For indeed, we know that that was the Judean wilderness west of the Dead Sea and the Jordan River. But now Jesus is near Capernaum, up in the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, two hours from that wilderness. And so John or Mark is telling us about another lonely place, another solitary place. The same word is used. In fact, in chapter 1 of Mark, it's used six times. We get the impression that Mark is trying to convey that this This place that Jesus goes to, whether it's because he is going to be baptized by John in the wilderness, whether he's going to get tempted by the enemy and overcome by the power of God, or whether he's going off to just pray alone, Jesus sought out lonely places where he could be alone. It refers to a wasteland, uninhabited. I think Mark is trying to convey to us, right at the beginning of the gospel, that the key to the success of of the teaching ministry of Jesus is found in the solitary places where he was alone. That's what he is trying to say. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this in his book called Life Together. Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. He will only do harm to himself and the community. And let him who is not in community beware of being alone, for into the community you are called. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gets it right. He gets the balance absolutely perfect. He knows exactly how much time he needs to be absolutely invested in the lives of the needs of people all around him, and yet he is absolutely rigorous and unwavering in getting alone with the Father to pray and to seek the will of God for his life. In fact, the very, the very places that are mentioned in chapter 1 reflect that balance. The synagogue, back to a home, a solitary place, out on the road traveling, preaching. We see the balance of Jesus' life. We cannot study this and other passages of, of Scripture in Mark without seeing that the authority that he had on his listeners and the impact that he made was because of his source, his relationship with the Father. One day when Jesus and his disciples were out uh, walking through Samaria, they get to a place where uh, they got to go buy food. And so the disciples go into the town there where Jesus is left out at the wells outside of town. And and they go looking for food. Uh, Some hours later, they come back and they find Jesus and they offer him the food that, that they'd purchased. And Jesus says to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. For my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. You see, the source of everything that Jesus did was his Father. Everywhere Jesus went, everything that he did, he looked to the Father for his source. And the fact that Mark lists these lonely places so predominantly at the beginning, so that if he's alone in temptation, if he's alone in a busy ministry, the the source of strength for Jesus was his relationship with the Father I want to pose the question, how essential is it to you and I? Do you seek out silence and solitude so that you can pray to your Heavenly Father and find your purpose in life? But I want to go on beyond that. I want to say more than it was just a a religious kind of connection for, for Jesus. I want you to see from the text that his time alone in prayer was not just perfunctory or routine religious practice, but instead it actually gave him light for the path so that he could actually make radical decisions. Life-altering decisions do not come without some solitude and silence. 
And so we see this, and it leads to our second point, which is in your outline, a resolute purpose. Jesus preached the good news. And this is another word that is repeated in chapter 1 of Mark, the word preach, and the word teach, used various times. But Mark tells the story, likely as he heard it from Peter, how during that first week of ministry, one morning, Peter woke up and he looked across the room at the cot that Jesus was sleeping on the night before. And he wasn't there. And perhaps the day was just dawning and he was shocked at not seeing the master sleeping there. For they had been up late the night before healing all kinds of people. And so he wakes up his, his brother Andrew and maybe James and John as well. And they go out and search for Jesus. Maybe they wake up other people looking for Jesus. In fact, the NIV has a very soft word here when it says in verse 36, they went to look for him. The actual Greek word is more like a manhunt. They went hunting for Jesus. They were desperate. They wanted to know what happened to their master. And that's why when, when we see Peter find him in verse 37, it's a frantic call. Everyone is looking for you. You see, Peter seems to have assumed the role of Jesus' agent at this point. He sees the opportunity all over this moment. Jesus has just taught in the synagogue and wowed the listeners. He's healed all kinds of diseases. He's driven out demons. The whole town was looking for him. Peter wanted to capitalize on this moment. This was his opportunity. Get Jesus out into the public eye. Strike the iron while it is hot. Everyone is looking for you. Get out there and show them your stuff. Isn't this why you came? And you can see in the text that Jesus responds to Peter and he says, No, <laughs> no, that's not why I came. Might have been a real tough pill to swallow for the disciples. This is not why I came. You see, they had seen other rabbis far less impressive than Jesus, who had capitalized on less moments and tried to ride the public opinion polls and tried to receive the praises of the people, and work the crowd, stroke their egos. And Jesus says, no, that's not why I've come, to draw a crowd. Do you see, please see in the text, that it was the pause in Jesus' life, and the solitary time alone with the Father, that gave him the ability to make this radical, life-altering decision. You see, humanly speaking, we do not know how Jesus went to sleep the night before. I dare say that having had the whole town at the door, Jesus might have gone to bed that night thinking, wow, there are so many needs in this town alone. There are so many more evil spirits out there. There are so many more illnesses. I haven't seen everyone. I may have to stay here for many more days. He might have gone to bed thinking that. But when he spent time with the Father, what did he say to Peter? He said, let's get out of here. Because I've got other things to do. This is not why I came. I came to preach. There's some really incredible, important things here for us. We need to figure out why we've come on this earth. If you are always and only in the mainstream of social life, you will not figure out the purpose God has for your life. If you do not how to know how to nurture a relationship with the Father, you will miss the discerning voice of God.
And you will spend your, your time needlessly pursuing all kinds of voices. You see, one of the things that we learn from Jesus here is that the need does not constitute the call. There were many people in Jesus' life everywhere he traveled that were still demon-possessed and still sick and lame and still crippled and still needing more and so on, and Jesus moved on. And the fact that you get a call somewhere in your day does not constitute you meaning that God's will is for you to go. Neither is it likewise conversely true that just because you've planned your day and you get an interruption that you're not supposed to follow that interruption as the will of God. How do you discern those things? Well, I'll tell you, I don't think there's any way of doing it unless you're alone with God sometimes where you get to know that still small voice. And it reminds us, this text reminds us in our church of how very easily we can get caught up in our agendas. In fact, we can get caught up in the meeting of the needs of our community and other places around the world, which is indeed God's will for us. But in prayer, the Lord will remind us to be resolute about the one purpose that is above all purposes, and that is to share the good news of Jesus Christ who brings forgiveness of sin and offers eternal life. No one else does. You see... It's wonderful that we're opening up our building to more of the community needs. It's wonderful that we're going out and reaching out and so on. But I'm telling you, that's, it's a scary place to be too because in this generation, the church can easily become a community service center. And if we become a community service center and little more than that, then I ask the question, who else in this city or in this world, besides the churches of Jesus Christ, regardless of denomination, who else is going to be concerned about the souls of men, women, and children? If we are not. And so to me, this is a, an incredible text of warning that, yes, we are involved in the needs of community and life and so on, but... Just like Jesus, if we are prayerful, we will never lose sight of that one purpose that stands above all purposes of preparing people to meet the Lord. Well, it leads us to our third point, which is a tender passion of Jesus reaching out and touching. We see this in this text in various ways. I want to start by making a simple observation, though. And the observation is found in verse 32. I want you to notice that Mark classifies, he classifies those coming to Jesus in two categories, just two. There were those that were sick, and there were those that were demon-possessed. And in verse 34, we read the same classification, that he healed, Jesus healed many with various diseases, and he also drove out demons. In fact, a better rendering of verse 34 would be that he healed many that were sick of different diseases and demons. The verb sick applies to the diseases and demons. There's two ways of being sick, according to Mark's classification. There's two ways of being ill. Sickness or diseases physically and demonic oppression, evil spirits spiritually. According to this, that's what we see. In fact, if we're not going to see it fully today, that's fine because you're going to find it 23 more times 
in the Gospel of Mark. 24 times the evil spirits and demons are coming up and, and identified by Jesus. And according to Mark, there's two kinds of miracles that Jesus performed on individuals. He cleansed people of diseases and demons. G. Campbell Morgan says this. He says that the miracles Jesus performed were not violations of the natural order. They were restorations to the natural order. You see, something was out of whack and Jesus was setting it right. Now, I don't know what you do with the classification that's in the scripture here. Okay, you do with it what you want. God is saying that there are two ways of being ill. One is a physical way and one is a spiritual way. But identifying evil spirits is something that our culture does not take kindly to. In fact, if I was preaching this in other parts of the world, like in the indigenous peoples of Bolivia where we served or many parts of in fact most parts of the world except the western world i would not even have to sideline my comments here about the spiritual world because everybody around the world believes in the spirit world far more than we do in north america i just talked this past week i had coffee with some pastors and i spoke to one pastor who referred to someone who came to a pastor in this city an immigrant family who came to a pastor in this city and said, what do we do? They were just dreadfully afraid. And they said, what do we do? Uh, somebody back in our home country has put a curse on our family. And uh, the pastor, the Canadian pastor, was, was, was asking advice to other pastors. What should I do? Should, should I just say, well, don't worry. They can do what they want. Nothing's going to harm you. And they consulted with an African brother, an African pastor in the city. And he said, oh, you better take this seriously. Because even though you're a Christian and this family may not have too much happen, but they can make life awful if these evil spirits come against. That curse is real. And you need to pray a covering of protection over them. But you see, in North America, in our Western world, our scientific humanistic worldview attempts to explain spiritual phenomena with other labels. C.S. Lewis was right in his preface to the Screwtape Letters when he wrote this. He said, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And our culture tends toward the former. We tend to not believe in the existence of the spiritual world and the evil spirits and demons that in this world are always wreaking havoc. They never stop. Maybe there are signs of change. Do you think there are signs of change when the Winnipeg police force listened to the elders of an indigenous community about having consulted the spirits as to where to find the body of a, a girl at the Brady landfill site? Do you think that's a change in the winds? Or do you think that's just political correctness on the part of the police force? You see... The, the biggest deception that the devil ever made was to just convince people that he doesn't exist. The devil does three things. He tempts, he accuses, and he deceives. 
Now, you generally know when you're being tempted, if you're at all discerning. You should know when you're being tempted, if you're seeking to walk in the light with Christ. And you generally also, if you're a Christian that's discerning, you can know when you're being accused falsely before the throne of grace when Jesus Christ has already forgiven you and you don't need to bear the shame and the guilt that you're bearing. He's called the accuser of the brethren. But the third type of trick that the devil has is by its very nature almost impossible to detect because it is deception. He's the deceiver, it's called. So he'll do all kinds of things to deceive. And one of his biggest deceptions is simply convincing the world that there is no evil spirits and demons. Or do we really think that demons disappeared from the earth after the time of Christ? Are you telling me that you believe that that this in Jesus' day were real demons and evil spirits, but today we don't have that? Is that what you believe? And do you believe as well that the miracles that Jesus performed and and the exorcism, that that was for Jesus' day and that was real, but now it doesn't happen? I can't believe that. I believe in the Jesus of miracles today. I believe in the Jesus that can set someone who is oppressed by the devil free. I believe in the evil spirits that harass us at every turn. I want to ask you the question, could it be, could it be that many of our addictions that we face are rooted in opening the door because of our sin, in rooted in now in demonic oppression, a stronghold, a foothold that Satan gets in our life because we've opened the door and we didn't figure out how to close it. Could it be that Many of the things that are illnesses that have been labeled with other names in our society have at their root demonic and evil spirit oppression. Could it be that psychosocial symptoms of our society are really rooted in the oppression of evil spirits? Why are we so unbelieving? Why do we rip parts of our Bible out and say, that's not now true? I reuse the word oppression intentionally instead of the word possession. And I think it's very important that I explain why. You'll notice that in verse 23 of Mark 1 and verse 32 that the NIV uses the word demon possessed, possessed by an evil spirit. And that's a real unfortunate translation because it's led to many wrong conclusions and bad theology. In fact, it's led many people as Christians to believe that somehow they're quarantined from the oppression of Satan in this world. Because, because you, know, you can't imagine that a, a Christian can be possessed by a demon. And so because of that, we, we eliminate him as a real threat to any Christian, blood-bought Christian. But the fact is that the word daimonizomai means simply demonized. It means to come under the influence of a demon. It does not mean possession, which in the English language conveys absolute ownership. Absolutely, the the Christian, the real true believer in Jesus Christ, who has the Spirit of God in them, can never be possessed by an evil spirit. Absolutely. 
But we can be demonized. We can come under the influence of the evil one through one of his many evil spirits. And we can do it by simply opening a door to him by not forgiving someone, holding sin. You see, just like the evil spirits that we find in the Gospel of Mark, do you notice that every time one of them is present, they can't stay silent. They shriek, they yell, they cry out in the presence of Jesus. Why? Because the devil works in the dark and Jesus works in the light. And the devil cannot stay silent. No evil spirit can stay hidden. You see, sin was not meant to be hidden either. And there are sins today in this room that are hidden. And because they're hidden, the devil is winning over you. And he has a foothold in your life, and an evil spirit is at the root of it. You are being demonized. Now, you might want to call it something else. You might call it an addiction or some other thing. I don't... But don't be so unbelieving as to think that the devil doesn't have something to do with tearing you down. For he has come to rob and kill and destroy, according to John 10. We were made to walk in the light. We need to move on, and uh, we will return to this whole subject But I want you to see that in verse 34, Jesus heals those who were sick. Physically and spiritually, Jesus sets free. And and so we see that though our lives may be opened up at times to the presence of the evil one, to a sin or something that is dragging us down and taking us captive that Jesus is the one who sets free. Our waging war is not against simply our own sin or the worldly influences around us. We have a real spiritual enemy that the scripture speaks volumes about. And so how do we do battle? We go to prayer. We, we come into the light. If there's a secret sin that's holding you in bondage, the best thing you could do is go to a trusted brother or sister that also lives beneath the cross of Jesus that is not going to be shocked at your sin because they have their own. And you go and you confess that and you bring it into the light and you pray together because the prayer of a righteous man or woman is powerful and effective. You can be delivered. Let's conclude with the final story in Mark chapter 1. It's an incredible story about a leper. Now, leprosy was a disease in... It's not stamped out completely on planet Earth, but it is a disease that, a word here used of any kind of a skin infectious disease that was contagious. And in the time of, of Leviticus, in the, in the law of Moses, it was clearly stated that anybody with an infectious skin disease, like leprosy, had to live quarantined in their own quarters off away from the general population. Generally speaking, outside of towns and villages were leper colonies. And whenever a person that was clean, as opposed to unclean, approached a leper, the leper, by virtue of the law of Moses, had to yell out, unclean! And so it was a socially and physically isolating illness and disease. And if they did not shout unclean, they could be brought to the temple police and and tried. 
And so here is in verse 41 a man who has leprosy, and it says he approached Jesus. That's incredible. He is approaching Jesus. That in itself could condemn him. And then what's surprising is the response of Jesus. Rather than running the other direction or condemning him to the temple police, Jesus is filled with compassion, we're told. It's an incredible word. It talks, it's where we get our word spleen. It's such a deep compassion that it's found down deep. If you have compassion for someone like this that Jesus has, and it's a tender mercy. He felt that, and it moved him to actually reach out and touch him. Touch the man with the contagious skin disease. And immediately it says, the leprosy left him, and he was whole. What a picture this is. What a picture this is of compassion that moves us to reach out and touch the unclean that are around us. And also, what a picture of prayer this is. This man comes before Jesus, falls down on his knees, and he begs, and he says, if you are willing. Is that not that way we pray? We say, Lord, if you are willing, we know you can, you can heal my friend. We say, Lord, if you are healing, you can deliver this person from depression. You see, we come with this man's belief in the power of the Son of God to do something, and all, all that stands in the way is, are you willing, God? Do we come to Jesus with that faith? And Jesus, in this instance, says, I'm willing. Be healed. Be clean. Do we have that compassion? There are so many questions that you could take to your life groups this week or you could talk about with your families at home or with a friend. Some of them are listed at the bottom of your page on the green page. I want to add one to that. I want to ask you, do you think that you might want to discuss with somebody how much we are an extension of this compassion of Jesus? Really? I mean, come on, folks. Why? Why is it that a bus driver can stop a bus, take off his shoes, give it to a street person, and it makes world news? Is that not an indictment on the churches of Winnipeg that it stands out so much that compassion like that makes media attention? We have to be known as the people that show compassion. We have to be known as the people that are Jesus people. And when we look at what he is all about here, we see that he is all about compassion. Would you bring the worship team forward, Kevin, and would you conclude our service with all of us asking the Lord to turn the gaze inward? Would you do that as we conclude our service this morning? I would ask you to take what you've heard the Holy Spirit say to you this morning and to go out into your week with the earnest desire to apply what it is that he has spoken to you. Amen. Try it in.
Thank you. 